Please turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 15. We'll look at verses 1 through 20 of that chapter. We've been looking at the book of Mark together for some months now. And we are at the point of Mark where the focus turns very clearly on Jesus' death. And this is, in a very real way, the point of the Gospels. More than anything else, they emphasize his death. You will see there are more details about Jesus' death in here than uh, we get details about anything else in his life. Some people have called the Gospels passion narratives. A passion narrative is a story of somebody's death. Passion narratives with long introductions. The point is there that the focus of the Gospels is to explain Jesus' death. And as we look at Jesus' death in particular, I'm honestly excited about what God is doing in our church. Looking at Jesus' death can be a life-changing, incredible experience. Unfortunately, as as I see it, many Christians today uh, could really, they they would agree that Jesus' death is significant. Yes, I think Jesus' death is significant, they would say. But if you ask, well, In what way is it significant? How is it significant for you? The answer wouldn't be so clear. And that's tragic because it means that we are then missing out on the real foundation of our life, the foundation of our Christian life. Let me just give you a few examples of people who found Christ's death to be foundational. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, you may have heard of him before. He found much meaning in Jesus' death. He He wrote uh, that when Jesus bids a man to come, he bids him to come and die. Bonhoeffer found much meaning in Jesus' death. And then when Bonhoeffer died at the hands of the Nazis in a concentration camp, he died in such a way that one person later wrote, I have never seen a man die so entirely submissive to the will of God. Knowing Jesus' death and finding his meaning in Jesus' death made all the difference in the world for him. Or I I know of a Christian minister who I think has done very much to serve the church. And he said that there are many things that help him focus on his task. But sometimes he gets really discouraged and just holds on to this one thing that Jesus is so glorious and beautiful. And then he says that he thinks of a quote by uh, Tolkien in The Lord of the Rings where Mary rushes out out to help Eowyn in the battle, and Mary says, such a one as beautiful as this should not die alone. Jesus' death is so wonderful that we should be willing to join him. And these examples are consistent with Scripture. The Apostle Paul says that when he came to the Corinthian church, he knew nothing except for Jesus and him crucified. Or Paul also says that may I boast, boasting means to take confidence in something, to take ultimate you know, trust in it, may, may I never boast in anything but the cross of Christ. Friends, don't settle for simply knowing that his death is significant. Press on further and know why his death is significant for you, that you may have life and peace and salvation, and that you may bring Christ glory for the good death that he died on the cross for you. Well, now, how does Mark explain the significance of Jesus' death? Well, the answer is, he does so by showing us who this person is who died. Mark here, and really all of the Gospels, show the significance of Jesus' death by connecting his death with his life. 
His life shows us what kind of person he is and how he lives. And the gospel writers aim to connect the dots between the kind of person who he is and his life and his death. If you've been with us as we've gone through the gospels, you will remember that Jesus says many times, the Son of Man, speaking of himself, will be handed over. They will beat him. He will be crucified. And he says this over and over again. But the disciples think it's crazy talk. They say, no way the life you're living and the kind of person who you are will end in your death. They think that's crazy. Peter at one point even rebukes Jesus for talking this way. But Jesus sees what they don't see. Jesus sees who he really is. He knows who he really is. And he knows the kind of life that he's living. And he knows the evil that lurks in the hearts of men. So he knows that he is right then on a collision course with the authorities of his day. And as we work through the book of Mark, the closer we get to Jesus' death, the more we see the way in which he is living will bring about that death. So this morning, we're going to look at chapter 15, verses 1 through 20. Please turn there in your Bibles if you haven't done already. Let me, let me tell you what we're going to see there. This passage has three sections. Several of the, your Bible versions will have it divided up into three paragraphs. And in each of these sections, what we see about Jesus is who he is as king And we see how that kingly authority, kingly role, leads to his death. And we see Jesus as king before Pilate. The second scene, we see Jesus as king before the crowds. And third, we see Jesus as king before the soldiers. And in each of these scenes, there's an ironic way in which he is revealed as king and how that uh, leads to his death. So let me read the passage. Mark chapter 15, verses 1 through 20. As soon as it was morning... The chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered, You have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate asked him again, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you? But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask him, to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priest had delivered him up. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call king of the Jews? And they cried out, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having Jesus scourged, he handed him over to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion, and they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him, and they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, 
They stripped him of his purple cloak and put on his clothes, and they led him out to crucify him. Let's pray. Well, Father, as we look at our Lord's crucifixion, we pray that we would take nothing lightly here at all. Lord, the fact that we can say our Lord's crucifixion should amaze us right there. Our Lord was crucified. The sovereign Lord of human history entered history and died a most humiliating and painful death for us. Oh Lord, like Pilate, let us be amazed at him. But let us do much more than Pilate here. Let us actually believe in him. Let us actually submit our lives to him. Revel in who he is for us. Let us come in desperate need of him and truly worship him. Oh Lord, remove any distractions we have this morning as we look at this passage. Cause us to see the glory of Christ in his death for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this passage, as I said before, consists of three scenes. And the first is Jesus as he stands before Pilate. Now, to make sense of this passage, let me just remind you of what you saw last week in Steve's, uh, Steve preached on uh, chapter 14. And Jesus there in the end of chapter 14 is on trial for being the Messiah. And the Jews hold the trial for him. They, uh, the evidence for him being the Messiah is overwhelming. His life pointed to that. His testimony pointed to that. Plenty of evidence that this is who he really is. But rather than recognizing, oh, he's the Messiah, let us worship him and follow him. No, they, they accuse him of being the Messiah, and then they re- reject him. They don't want a Messiah like that. They want a Messiah who they can control, which is to say they want no Messiah at all. You see, at the end of the day, this is not an intellectual issue for them. It is a moral issue. They don't want a Savior like that. And so they prepare to kill him. But they have a problem. As just Jewish authorities, they have no right to sentence somebody to death. They have to go to the Roman authorities to get a death sentence. And that forces another trial before Pilate. Pilate is the Roman representative there in Jerusalem. So he carries the weight of the Roman government. And they bring Jesus before him, wanting a death sentence. It appears that Pilate has received formal accusations against Jesus. Uh, The accusations are that Jesus is the king of the Jews. Now, that might seem to come out of nowhere. I mean, the, the trial in chapter 14, king of the Jews, was nowhere mentioned. But actually, king of the Jews is another way of saying the Messiah, so he's really on trial again for being the Messiah. But they're using that phrase, king of the Jews, to try to... uh, to try to get him convicted before Rome. You see, if they merely say to the Roman government, this guy is claiming to be God, Rome's not going to care. If they arrested everybody who was crazy running around, um, they would fill up their courts. No. But if they see that Jesus is claiming to be king, well, that's a different story altogether because uh, king, the king of Rome is Tiberius, who sits on the throne in Rome. And there had actually recently been a coup that tried to get rid of King Tiberius, and now he has made it very clear that anybody claiming to be king is going to receive a very harsh sentence. So that was the historical background going on. That's why this accusation had some weight to it. And so in this trial, Jesus, or Pilate rather, asks Jesus, 
are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus says, you have said so. And that's a bit of a strange response, don't you think? In Greek words, it's two, it's, in Greek, it's two words, you say. I think there Jesus is affirming that he is the king of the Jews. I mean, that is another way of saying the Messiah, and he is the Messiah. So he is affirming that this is who he is. But this answer is also elusive for two reasons. First, Jesus is the king of the Jews, but he is like no king that Pilate has ever seen before. What Jesus means by king and what Pilate means by king are two different things. But also, and I think maybe more importantly, Jesus is signaling in this answer that he's not interested in talking to Pilate about this anymore. That's not typical, though, of somebody who's falsely accused, is it? I mean, imagine you're falsely accused of a capital crime. You're probably going to want to try to talk your way out of it, right? He may very well be able to save his life at this point. It's not a closed deal. Pilate's not interested in in, in being a puppet for the Jewish authorities. No, Pilate will make his own decision. Jesus could try to defend himself and very well may be able to get off. But he doesn't do that at all. He makes no attempt to defend himself. I think that's because it's not within his plan to be vindicated by the Roman state. As it says right here, he is the king of the Jews. He has come to his own people to be their Messiah. And he wants his own people to accept him. He's the Messiah of the world as well. But he first comes to his own people. And yet, they've tragically chosen to reject him. And now, he has absolutely nothing to gain by being vindicated by the Romans. Jesus is not interested merely in saving his life. He wants his own people to accept him for who he is. Jesus also knows that it is God's plan for him to go to the cross. So the trial continues. Verse 3 there, See, the chief priests accuse him of many things. So Jesus is there. Picture the trial scene. Jesus is there saying nothing. He's silent. And there's this, this group of priests dressed up in their garb, accusing Jesus of all sorts of things. And Jesus is standing there saying nothing. And Pilate turns to Jesus and says, like, aren't you going to say something here? They're accusing you of stuff. But Jesus still doesn't say a word. And verse 5, notice there, Pilate is amazed. This word amazed is always used in the Gospels in a very positive sense. We read in the Gospels that Jesus, he, that people rather hear the words of Jesus and they see the miracles of Jesus and they're amazed. And they say things like, nothing has ever happened like this in Israel before. Pilate is not simply being stunned that a man who's accused isn't defending himself. No, he sees something in Jesus that is truly amazing here. Think about it. If you're accused of something and you don't answer, it's probably for one of two reasons. Either you know you're guilty, so anything you say is just going to make it worse. Or you know you're not guilty, and you know that you're above these people, and you know what they think doesn't matter. Now, that second scenario could actually sound a little bit arrogant, except for the fact that we're talking about Jesus, who truly is above these people, and their verdict really doesn't matter. The irony here is that Jesus is really king, even as he receives these accusations against him. So think about what's what's going on here from, from Pilate's perspective. Pilate has a man standing before him who is accused of being king. And on the one hand, he looks absolutely nothing like a king. That's why Pilate keeps using this phrase, king of the Jews, in an ironic sense. 
He wears no crown. I will have a horrible crown in a minute, but not yet. He commands no armies. He has no followers, no throne to sit upon. And yet, there is something about his utter silence before his accusers that makes him very kingly. But yet, like no king Pilate has ever seen before. The irony of this whole situation is that Jesus, right then and there, is acting more like a king than Pilate is. Think about how the two men are very different. Pilate is a coward and a wimp. Pilate sentences a man who he knows to be innocent to death because he's a pushover and wants to please the crowd and is concerned about his own career and people not talking bad about him. Talk about a bad king there. Jesus, however, has complete resolution. He he is not intimidated by the angry accusations. Jesus is not pushed over by the people. Jesus acts courageously. Friends, aren't you glad that Jesus is the king of the world and not Pilate? Well, Peter explains what's going on in Jesus' mind that allows him to act the way he does. In 1 Peter chapter 2, the disciple of Jesus writes, this is about Jesus, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. See that there? He's silent. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued to entrust himself to him who judges righteously. In other words, Jesus knew that God, not Pilate, was on the throne of history, that God was the judge, and that God would judge justly. And Jesus knew that he was living his life entirely obedient to God, so that was all that mattered. He had nothing to fear in the face of their accusations. Jesus also knew that in one sense, this was not a trial for him at all. The ones on trial that day were the religious leaders and Pilate. And they were on trial for how they were treating him. And the guilty verdict they cast was really against themselves. John describes this well. He writes in John chapter 3, And this is the verdict. The light has come into the world. But men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. So what's going on here? Mark is showing that Jesus is the real king, the true king. And yet the world does not want that kind of king. And so the world rejects him and hands him over to be crucified. Friends, do you know that even though we're years away from this historical trial, that same sort of judgment is still going on? Friends, you might think that right now in your minds, what's going on is you are trying to come to some assessment about Jesus and following him. You might be thinking, "Mm, should I follow Jesus as my king? I'm not sure. Positives and negatives. Should I be baptized as he commands? I can't decide. Should I I be part of a church? Well, let me see if it'll fit into my schedule. But really, in this moment, what's going on is that God is coming to some assessment of you based on your assessment of Jesus. Now, friends, don't get me wrong. It's good to weigh the words that I'm saying carefully. Make sure that what I'm saying that Jesus calls us to do is accurate to what he really calls us to do. And and friends, make sure that you really understand what it means to follow Jesus. Too often I've seen people think that they're following Jesus and really Jesus hasn't commanded them to do anything like that at all. But the fundamental posture of your heart should be that when you know what Jesus calls us to do, you do it. That that should not be up for grabs, up for discussion. Do not be like the religious leaders here who only want a king who they can control. No, that's no king at all. 
C.S. Lewis made the astute observation years ago that for ancient man, God was on the bench, that is, the judge, and man was on the dock, that is, in the place of the accused. But for modern man, he, he is on the bench, the judge, and God is in the dock. Now, we may find God guilty or innocent. The verdict is not yet in. But the important thing is that we are on the bench and God is on the dock. What this passage shows us to try as we may to put God on the dock, he's always on the bench. This passage also teaches us that mere fascination about Jesus is not sufficient. Pilate is amazed at Jesus. And again, Mark is using that word in a positive sense. He really thinks Jesus is the most fascinating person he's ever met in his life. He also makes, he also thinks that Jesus is innocent. And and Pilate makes a good faith effort to have him released. But at the end of the day, he will not stand for Jesus, which means he stands against him. Friends, mere fascination with Jesus is not enough. Warm, fuzzy feelings that, that we have towards Jesus because of some experience in the past is not enough. A good faith effort to follow Jesus when it happens to fit our schedule is not enough. God wants us to truly believe in him and follow him as our king. And if we do believe in him and follow him as our king, guess what's going to happen to us? Well, we're going to be treated like he is. Jesus makes that completely clear in this gospel. He says, you will be handed over to the authorities as well. You will be betrayed by family members. We will be treated like him. Friends, the Gospel of Mark was written under the uh, emperor of Nero. He was the emperor that cut off the Apostle Paul's head, that hung Peter upside down, the emperor that falsely accused Christians of the great fire in Rome and then dipped them in wax and lit them as candles around the city. Many Christians in Mark's day were dragged before the Roman court and they were asked if they would confess to being a Christian, a follower of Jesus. And if they did, they were then handed over and tortured and killed much like Jesus was. Men, women, and children were placed on crosses. Mark writes uh, this to show us the kingly nature of Jesus even in his death. And if he is king even in his death, that means that you can follow him as your king even in your death. Now, friends, you probably are not facing uh, the, the idea of being dragged into a court and tortured to death for your Christian faith. At least not now. But if you were, be encouraged that Jesus is strong enough to be your king even then. And if he can be your king even then and hold you and keep you even then, then how can he not keep you and hold you in any other situation you face? Now, some people are thinking, but what if I haven't lived like that? What if actually this week I've been more like Peter who denied Jesus three times? How can I then find meaning in Jesus' death? Well, let's keep going. I think you'll see something wonderful here. In verse 6, this is scene 2, by the way. In verse 6, we're introduced to a certain custom. Every year at Passover, Pilate would release one prisoner for the crowd. This practice fits very much with the Roman government at the time. They ruled with an iron fist, but then they did enough, uh, they made uh, strategic PR moves to avoid full-scale rebellion. That's what they did. 
So this fits completely with what we know at the time. And Mark also tells us here that, that one of the prisoners at the time was a man called Barabbas, who was a murderer and a rebel. And in verse 8 there, the people come up to Pilate to request their one prisoner for the year. And, and I think Pilate here thinks that he's got, got to figure out some way to let Jesus off without directly offending the religious establishment, which would probably be bad for him. He knows that Jesus has been popular with the crowd, and, and he thinks that he can then persuade the crowd to pick Jesus. So he says in verse 9, Do you want uh, me to release for you the king of the Jews? But then verse 11, But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. Well, friends, that's not at all how the crowd should be treating their king, is it? The crowds show up in the book of Mark quite often. They don't always get Jesus' real message, but Jesus is always really loving and kind to them. We see in the, Mark, in the book of Mark that he feeds the crowds, that he teaches the crowds, that he heals many in the crowds. And when he's around the, with the crowds, he, he moves towards them. He's not like, oh, crowds, keep me away. Let me just hang out with the important people. No, he runs to the masses to be with them and love them. But what do the crowds do for Jesus? Do they vote for him when it really counts? No. They shout, crucify him. And when Pilate says, why? What in the world did this guy do wrong? They don't answer. They can't answer. They just yell even louder, crucify him. Again, it's not, a more, it's not an intellectual issue. It's a moral issue. They don't want him to be that king for them. And they demand that a murderer and an insurrectionist be released instead. It's interesting how Mark adds that little word instead there. You see it at the end of verse 11? The sentence could well, uh, well enough make sense without it. Mark could have just said the chief priest stirred up the crowd so that he released Barabbas. But Mark says, instead. And that seems to imply that Jesus should have been the one released that day, right? Jesus is the one who is innocent. He's the one who has done nothing wrong. Pilate recognizes that. Pilate also recognizes that the Jewish uh, officials are simply handing him over because they want uh, him out of the way. Verse 10, Pilate perceives that it was out of envy that the high priest handed him over. Pilate knows very well who the guilty party is here. But the murderer and the insurrectionist is released instead. Barabbas takes Jesus' place and Jesus takes Barabbas' place. The murderer gets off. Now, you might wonder, how does this at all relate to Jesus being king? It it might seem crazy that a king would die in place of the people, in place of murderers and rebels. But that's exactly the kind of king he is. That's what he came to do. Mark 10, in Mark 10, Jesus is explaining how the kingdom will be established. And he says there, the Son of Man, which is the title for king out of the book of Daniel. The Son of Man did not come to serve and be, sorry, he did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The Greek there could perhaps better be translated, in the place of many. Jesus came to die in the place of sinners, instead of sinners. That's exactly the kind of king that he is. Jesus said he would do that in Mark 10, and now he's doing that here in Mark 15. And talk about a leader who lives up to his word. 
no matter the cost. But friends, Barabbas isn't the only murderer that dies, that Jesus dies in the place of that day. When the disciples began preaching the gospel, one of the first things they do is to confront the masses in Jerusalem who wanted Jesus to die. Peter tells the crowd, this Jesus whom you crucified, whom you crucified, don't miss that there, God has raised up to be Lord. And then Peter tells them to repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of their sins. And Luke then adds that about 3,000 souls were added to their number that day. So many of those who who handed Jesus over to be crucified, who shouted, crucify him, find forgiveness for their sins in the very death of the man they caused to die. Jesus is willingly giving his life over for them, even as they are handing him over to die. That's the kind of king he is. But that's not all. You see, friends, if you believe in him, That means that he died on the cross for your sins too. He freely gave himself in your place. He died instead of you. And if he died on the cross for your sins, that means that you are part of the reason why he died. Sometimes people try to ask the historical question, who is responsible for Jesus' death? Is it the Roman authorities? Is it the Jewish leaders? Is it Herod? Is it Pilate? Is it Judas? But the true answer is, I am. Listen to John Stott here. Some of you might recognize this from his book, The Cross of Christ, that we worked through last year. John Stott writes, Were you there when they crucified my Lord? The old spiritual asks. And we must answer, yes, we were there. Not as spectators only, but as participants, guilty participants, plotting, scheming, betraying, bargaining, and handing him over to be crucified. We may try to wash our hands of responsibility like Pilate, but our attempts will be as futile as his, for there is blood on our hands. Before we can begin to see the cross as something done for us, leading us to faith and worship, we have to see it as something done by us, leading us to repentance. Indeed, only the one who is prepared to share in the guilt of the cross may claim his share in its grace. And friends, this meaning of Jesus' death is what gives us hope, even when we have not followed him as we ought to have. The significance of Jesus' death is not simply that it is a beautiful death, and therefore we should be willing to follow him, but rather what makes it beautiful, precisely what makes it beautiful, is that it is the most amazing act of love there is. He dies for his enemies. For those who caused him shame, he dies for us. Friends, won't you believe in him? Now, we have a short amount of time remaining, but I want to look at the last scene in verses 16 through 20. This last scene brings everything together and then, I think, drives it all home. Here we see Jesus as king before the soldiers. Now, If you remember, the very last thing we saw in scene two was that Pilate had Jesus scourged and then handed him over to be crucified. And we can read about that scourging very quickly, but we have to just realize that that would have been a horrific event. Scourging is using a leather whip with pieces of bone on the end to to literally pull off a person's flesh. It would have been horrible. But 
Mark doesn't dwell on that at all. No, he just says, scourged, and that's it. Runs to the next thing. What does he dwell on instead? Look there in verses uh, 16 through 20. What does is, what is, uh, Mark really want to emphasize here? I think it's, it's Jesus' humiliation. He wants to emphasize the mocking, the disgrace that Jesus received. And he wants to show us how he received that as the king. First, the whole battalion is gathered together. Uh, it's difficult to know exactly how many people that would have been. A battalion would have typically been 6,000 soldiers. Probably not all of them could have fit in the headquarters, but, but there's a lot of people here. There's hundreds, perhaps thousands of people that Jesus is standing before. They've been called together to witness this event. And the first thing that happens is Jesus is stripped completely naked in front of these soldiers, and that's meant to humiliate him. The taking away of somebody's clothes is a way of dehumanizing someone, making them feel as if there's something wrong with them. And then they put a purple cloak upon him. One commentator suggests that this was probably no more than an old purple rug they found lying around. certainly didn't cover him. And then they twisted together a crown of thorns and placed it upon his head. And this was done to mock him. Some king you are. You look like a king now. And then they spit upon him. And this was their mocking version of kissing the king's hand, which would have been a symbol of respect. Think about how he felt in that situation. Think about how you would feel in that situation. I think the best word to describe it is shame. Ed Welch gives a great definition of shame. He says, shame is that deep sense that you are unacceptable because of something, done, because of something you did, something done to you, or something associated with you. You feel exposed and humiliated, and there are witnesses. The soldiers are certainly trying to make Jesus feel as if there is something wrong with him before abundance and abundance of jeering witnesses. Now, now why does Mark not dwell at all on the grotesque pain and suffering, but simply upon the humiliation? He uses one word to describe the scourging, but but describes in detail the the twisting of the thorns, the, the laying upon of the purple cloak. Why? I think it's because that humiliation presents a fuller picture of what it really means for Jesus to have taken our place. You see, the problem that we have as sinners is not simply the pain that we will experience if we are to suffer the penalty that we deserve, but that sense of being utterly exposed for what is truly wrong with us. You see, ever since Adam and Eve, we felt a sense of shame, and we've been wearing clothes that drive in every single culture to, to cover themselves up to at least some extent is, is a picture there, a, a teaching tool that we need a covering. Jesus here takes that shame upon himself. He is treated as if there was something wrong with him, as if he had done something wrong. He is revealed. He is revealed as being unacceptable. And friends, this is exactly what our sin deserves. I was tempted towards something that would have seemed quite small this week. And I was tempted to dismiss it. But then I considered this picture of Jesus. And I thought to myself, no, this is what that even little sin deserves. And that led me to repentance. Friends, let this lead you to your repentance as well. 
Now, why does Jesus experience this for us? Well, friends, it is not at all to load us down with guilt and condemnation. Some Christian traditions look to the cross simply as an instrument of of establishing guilt so that we feel bad about ourselves. But that's not why he does this. Instead, it is to clothe us with the garments of his righteousness, which banish shame forever. Friends, you must realize that if you are here this morning as a Christian, you will experience the exact opposite of what Jesus experienced that day. You will experience being welcomed. You will experience glory. You will experience, when you enter into heaven, innumerable people not mocking you, but welcoming you, ushering you into the presence of God where you will be accepted and wanted. And friends, you must know that Jesus is able to lead us into that glory because not only did he receive the shame in our place, but he defeated shame. He kills shame once and for all. Steve read earlier uh, Isaiah chapter 50. I think, by the way, that's one of my favorite passages in the whole Old Testament. And this is a prophecy of Christ. The prophet Isaiah looks ahead to that event that we've been talking about, and he puts these words in Jesus' mouth. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pluck out the beard. I did not hide my face from disgrace and spitting. And this passage, like the one we already saw, looks at Jesus' suffering in terms of humiliation that he received firmly upon himself. But, but, it says here, the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like flint, And I know that I will not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Even in that moment, when Jesus bore disgrace and humiliation, he knew that God was for him. And therefore, the humiliation and disgrace he knew would not ultimately stick to him. He knew that the shame and humiliation was actually a means by which he would experience glory. So, The crown of thorns was actually part of the pathway to his having a crown of life. The robe that dangled over his shoulders of his bleeding naked body would be the pathway by which he would receive true glory and honor. And the spitting upon his face was the means by which he would receive the inheritance of the nations. Jesus was being made king in that moment. Only a different kind of king than they had ever known. But friends, the good news of the gospel is that because of his death on the cross for us, we can know him. Let's pray.